Chapter Twenty of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Twenty. My Recollections of General Grant. I first met General Grant in May 1872, after Mr. Greeley had been nominated for the presidency by a convention whose members called themselves Liberal Republicans, although, as a matter of fact, many of them had been the most radical element of the party, but had seceded on account of personal grievances. My home was then at Warrenton, Virginia, where I was practicing law. As it was only fifty miles from Washington, I was frequently there, but I had only once seen General Grant, one evening at the National Theater, when he was in a box with General Sherman. Both men seemed to enjoy the play as much as the gods in the gallery. In common with most Southern soldiers, I had a very kindly feeling towards General Grant, not only on account of his magnanimous conduct at Appomattox but also for his treatment of me at the close of hostilities. I had never called on him, however. If I had done so, and if he had received me even politely, we should both have been subjected to severe criticism, so bitter was the feeling between the sections at the time. No doubt, in those days, most Northerners believed the imaginative stories of the war correspondents, and supposed that my battalion fought under the black flag. General Grant was as much misunderstood in the South as I was in the North. But time has healed wounds which were once thought to be irremediable, and there is to-day no memory of our war so bitter, probably, as the Scottish recollection of Culloden. Like most Southern men, I had disapproved the Reconstruction measures and was sore and very restive under military government, but since my prejudices have faded, I can now see that many things which we regarded as being prompted by hostile and vindictive motives were actually necessary, in order to prevent anarchy and to secure the freedom of the newly emancipated slave. I had given little attention to politics, and had devoted my time to my profession, although I was under no political disability. As we had all been opposed to the Republican Party before the war, it was a point of honor to keep on voting that way. When Horace Greeley was nominated, I saw, or thought I saw, that it was idle to divide longer upon issues which we acknowledged to have been legally, if not properly, settled, and that if the Southern people wanted reconciliation, as they said they did, the logical thing to do was to vote for Grant. I have not changed my opinion, nor yet have I any criticism to make of those who differed with me. We were all working for the same end. Some said they couldn't sacrifice their principles for Grant's friendship. I didn't sacrifice mine. Not long before the death of the late General M. C. Butler, United States Senator from South Carolina, I met him on the street in Washington. "'We ought to have gone with you for Grant,' he said. My views and opinions of that period are set forth in the following interview published in the Richmond Enquirer in January 1873. Reporter, I see it stated generally that you have some influence with General Grant. Is this true? Colonel Mosby, 
I don't know what amount of influence I may have with the President, but General Grant knows the fiery ordeal I have been through here in supporting him, and I suppose he has some appreciation of it. Reporter. What is the policy that you have advocated for the Virginia people? Colonel Mosby. The issues that formerly divided the Virginia people from the Republican Party were those growing out of the Reconstruction measures. Last year the Virginia people agreed to make no further opposition to those measures, and to accept all questions growing out of them as settled. There being no longer any questions, then, on principles separating Virginia people from General Grant, it became a mere matter of policy and expediency whether they would support him or Horace Greeley. I thought it was the first opportunity the Southern people had had to be restored to their proper relation and influence with the Federal Administration. In other words, I said the Southern statesmen ought to avail themselves of this opportunity and support General Grant for re-election, and thereby acquire influence and control over his administration. That was the only way I saw of displacing the carpet-bag crew that represented the government in the Southern states. I think that events have demonstrated that I was right. General Grant has certainly accorded to me as much consideration or influence as any one man could have a right to expect. I know it is the disposition of General Grant to do everything in his power for the relief of the Southern people, if Southern politicians will allow him to do it. The men who control the policy of the Conservative Party combine with the extreme radicals to keep the Southern people arrayed against General Grant. As long as this course is pursued, the carpet-bag crew who profess to support the administration get all of the federal patronage. This is the sustenance, the support of the carpet-bag party in the South. Deprived of that, it would die tomorrow. I admit, as every Southern man must admit, the gross wrongs that have been perpetuated upon the Southern people. I am no apologist for them but neither party proposes any atonement or indemnity for the past. I propose at least to give security for the future by an alliance between the Southern people and General Grant's administration. Reporter. Has the President ever tendered you any position under his administration? Colonel Mosby. Shortly after the presidential election, the President said something to me on the subject of giving me an office. I told him while I would as lief hold an office under him as under any other man who had ever been president, yet there was no office within his gift that I desired, or would accept. I told him that my motives in supporting him had been assailed, and my accepting a position under his administration would be regarded as a confirmation of the truth of the charge that I was governed by selfish motives. But my principal reason for not accepting anything from him was that I would have far more influence for good by taking nothing for myself. Reporter. Colonel, I have heard that you are now promoting claims against the government. Is that a fact? Colonel Mosby. It is not. I have filed one claim for a citizen before the Southern Claims Commission. I shall turn this over, however, to a claim agent. I have had hundreds of claims of all sorts for prosecution against the government offered me, but have declined them all, as I have no idea of bartering my political influence. I do not think that any man nominated at Lynchburg will stand the most remote chance of success, because he will only be supported by the Negroes of the State, led by a few white men. 
No matter what my relations to the administration may be, I wouldn't assist in putting this set in power. I had strong personal reasons for being friendly with General Grant. If he had not thrown his shield over me, I should have been outlawed and driven into exile. When Lee surrendered, my battalion was in northern Virginia, on the Potomac, a hundred miles from Appomattox. Secretary of War Stanton invited all soldiers in Virginia to surrender on the same conditions which were offered to Lee's army, but I was accepted. General Grant, who was then all-powerful, interposed, and sent me an offer of the same parole that he had given General Lee. Such a service I could never forget. When the opportunity came, I remembered what he had done for me, and I did all I could for him. Early one morning, a few days after the election of 1872, I had to go to the Treasury Department on business. The Secretary, Mr. Boutwell, had not come, and I was waiting in an ante-room. To my surprise, General Grant walked in. He shook hands with me and said, I heard you were here, and came to thank you for my getting the vote of Virginia. That is the only time I ever saw a President in any of the departments. Of course, I appreciated General Grant's compliment, although he gave me credit for a great deal more than I deserved. General Grant had also done another thing which showed the generosity of his nature. A few weeks before the surrender, a small party of my men crossed the Potomac one night and got into a fight, in which a detective was killed. One of the men was captured and sent to Fort McHenry. After the war he was tried by a military commission and sentenced to be imprisoned. The boy's mother went to see President Johnson, to beg a pardon for her son, but Johnson repelled her roughly. In her distress she went over to the War Department to see General Grant. He listened patiently to her sorrowful story, then rose and asked her to go with him. He took her to the White House, walked into the reception room, and told the President that there had been suffering enough, and that he would not leave the room without a pardon for the young Southerner. Johnson signed the necessary paper. In spite of the parole that I had taken, after I had settled down to the practice of law, I was several times arrested by provost marshals stationed at the courthouses where I went on the circuit. This was both annoying and unfair. My parole was a contract with the government that was binding on both parties. To arrest me before I had violated it was a breach of it. As my wife passed through Washington on her way to Baltimore, she determined to go to the White House, not to ask for a pardon, but to make a complaint. She had not intimated her purpose to me. Her father and President Johnson had served in Congress together, and had been friends, so she told Johnson whose daughter and whose wife she was. Instead of responding kindly, he was rude to her. She left him and went to see General Grant at the War Department. He treated her as courteously as if she had been the wife of a Union soldier, and then wrote the following letter, which he gave to her. He did not dictate the letter to a clerk. The whole is in his small, neat handwriting. It gave me liberty to travel anywhere, unmolested as long as I observed my parole. Headquarters of the Armies of the United States, Washington, D.C., February 2, 1866 John S. Mosby, lately of the Southern Army, will hereafter be exempt from arrest by military authorities, except for violation of his parole, 
unless directed by the President of the United States, Secretary of War, or from these headquarters. His parole will authorize him to travel freely within the State of Virginia, and as no obstacle has been thrown in the way of paroled officers and men from pursuing their civil pursuits, or traveling out of their states, the same privilege will be extended to J. S. Mosby, unless otherwise directed by competent authority. Signed, U. S. Grant, Lieutenant General. When General Ewell was captured by the Federal forces on the retreat from Richmond, he was sent to Fort Warren. Mrs. Ewell, who had married the general during the war, was from Nashville, and had known Johnson when he was governor of Tennessee. She too called on the President, presuming on their old acquaintance, to ask that her husband be released on parole. Ewell was in a feeble condition. He had lost a leg in the war. Johnson treated her just as he had treated my wife, and asked her why she had married a one-legged man. Mrs. Ewell then went to see General Grant, who expressed great pleasure at being able to do something for my old friend Ewell, and ordered that the poor fellow should be released from prison. He did hundreds of similar things. As I have said, my first interview with General Grant was in May 1872, when I was introduced to him by Senator Lewis of Virginia. He immediately began telling me how near I came to capturing the train on which he went to take command of the Army of the Potomac in 1864. I remarked, If I had done it, things might have changed. I might have been in the White House, and you might be calling on me. Yes, he said. In our talk I became convinced that he was not only willing, but anxious, to lift the Southern people out of the rut they were in, but he couldn't help them without their cooperation. If they insisted on keeping up their fire on him, he had to return the fire. I knew that he was in favor of relieving Southerners of the disabilities imposed by the Fourteenth Amendment, as he had recommended in his message. Such a bill had passed the House, but in the Senate Sumner had insisted on tacking to it his Civil Rights Bill, which made it odious, and the measure was defeated. I suggested that if he could get such a bill passed, it would be construed as an olive branch, and would create such a reaction in his favor in Virginia that we could carry the state for him. "'We will see what can be done,' he replied. As I was under no disability myself, it would have been hard to discover a selfish motive in what I urged Grant to do. A few days afterwards a bill removing political disabilities was reported in the House. The rules were suspended, and the bill passed. It was sent to the Senate. There was a night session. Sumner went to his committee room to take a nap, and while he was asleep the bill was called up and became a law. He was furious when he awoke and found out what had been done. Many Confederates who had been excluded from public position were then sent to Congress, or received appointments from Washington. Among them was the Vice President of the Southern Confederacy. I crossed the Rubicon when I paid my first visit to the White House, and I never recrossed it. My son Beverly, who was about twelve years old, was with me. He had been with his mother six years before, when she called on Andrew Johnson. That night, when he knelt by her to say his prayers, after getting through the usual form, he turned to her and said, "'Now, Mama, may I pray to God to send old Johnson to the devil?' I told the story to Grant. A great many would have joined in Beverly's prayer. 
he said, laughing. As many people in the South regarded me as a connecting link between the administration and themselves, I had to pay frequent visits to the White House, either to ask favors or to carry complaints. Such a duty is a shirt of Nessus to anyone who wears it. Although I declined to take office from General Grant, and exerted all the influence I had with him for the benefit of the Virginia people, this did not save me from the imputation of sordid motives. It is generally believed that Grant appointed me consul at Hong Kong. He did not. I was appointed by Mr. Hayes. Often as I went to the White House during Grant's second term, I never failed to see him, except once, when he was in the hands of a dentist. In those days hundreds went to him for appointments, who would now be sent to the Civil Service Commission. In spite of all this pressure he never seemed to be in a hurry. He was the best listener I ever saw, and one of the quickest to see the core of a question. I once called at the White House about seven o'clock in the evening, with a telegram I had received from General Hampton. The doorkeeper said that the President was at dinner. I gave the man my card and told him I would wait in the hall. He returned with a message from General Grant, asking me to come in and take dinner with the family. I replied that I had already dined. Then Ulysses S. Grant, Jr., came out and said, "'Father says that you must come in and get some dinner.' Of course I went in. At the table the General spoke of having called that evening on Alexander Stevens, who was lying sick at his hotel. It looked as if our war was a long way in the past, when the President of the United States could call to pay his respects to the Vice-President of the Confederate States. A few weeks before the close of Grant's second term I introduced one of my men to him. "'I hope you will not think less of Captain Glasscock, because he was with me in the war,' I said. "'I think all the more of him,' the President promptly replied. I once said to General Grant, "'General, if you had been a Southern man, would you have been in the Southern Army?' "'Certainly,' he replied. He always spoke in the friendliest manner of his old army comrades who went with the South. Once, speaking of Stonewall Jackson, who was with him at West Point, he said to me, "'Jackson was the most conscientious being I ever knew.' I saw Grant on the day when he signed the Electoral Commission Bill to decide the Hayes-Tilden dispute. He was in an unusually good humour, and said that the man in whose favour the Commission decided should be inaugurated. He talked a good deal about his early life in the army, and gave a description of his first two battles, Palo Alto and Resaca de la Palma. A few days after he left the White House, I called on General Grant at the home of Mr. Hamilton Fish, where he was staying. I did not ask him to recommend me to the new administration, as some members of the Cabinet were not friendly to him. President Hayes, however, appointed me United States Consul at Hong Kong, and it was there, in 1879, during Grant's tour of the world, that I last saw him. I went in a boat to meet him, and as I was the official representative of the United States, the other craft that surrounded the steamship as soon as it anchored gave me the right of way. As I went up the gangway, I recognized him, with his wife and eldest son, standing on the deck. It did look strange that I should be there representing the government, while General Grant was a private citizen. There was with me an old Virginian who had gone to Hong Kong before the war. 
When I introduced him, I told General Grant that when I arrived I had found this fellow-countryman of mine in about the same temper that I was in when the General was fighting in the wilderness, but that he was willing to surrender to the man to whom General Lee had surrendered. Mrs. Grant spoke up and asked liberal terms for him, and Grant said that he paroled him, and hoped he would be a loyal citizen. The governor of Hong Kong met General Grant's party at the wharf, and they went to the government house. Next morning the general paid his respects to me at the American consulate. He was the guest of the governor for about ten days. On several days I breakfasted with him, and we had many free and informal talks. Once he was giving a description of his ride on donkey-back from Jaffa to Jerusalem. That, he said, was the roughest road I ever travelled. General, I replied, I think you've travelled one rougher road than that. Where? he inquired. From the Rapidan to Richmond, I answered. I reckon there were more obstructions on that road, he admitted. I went with the General, Mrs. Grant, Colonel Fred Grant, and the Governor, in a launch, to the United States man-of-war which carried his party up the China coast, and bade him my last farewell. When we started ashore, the ship began firing a royal salute of twenty-one guns, in honour of the Governor, and the launch stopped. When the firing was over, General Grant lifted his hat, and we responded. I never saw the great soldier again. Some time afterwards I sent the general a Malacca cane which I had had lacquered for him. It bore the inscription, To General U. S. Grant, from John S. Mosby, Hong Kong. He was in very poor health when he received it, but Colonel Fred Grant wrote me that his father was pleased at my remembrance of him. When I heard that President Cleveland had removed me as consul in 1885, I wrote to General Grant, and asked him to secure me employment from some corporation, by which I could make a living. I did not then know how near he was to his end. My letter was forwarded to him at Mount McGregor, and on the day before I sailed from Hong Kong a dispatch announced his death. I felt that I had lost my best friend. I did not suppose that my letter would have any result, but on arriving in San Francisco I learned that he had dictated a note to Governor Stanford, of the Southern Pacific, asking him as a personal favour to take care of me. I was made an attorney in the company, and held that position for sixteen years. I have given as faithful an account as Aeneas did to Dido of events, all of which I saw, and part of which I was. No one clung longer to the Confederacy than I did and I can say with the champion of another lost cause, that if Troy could have been saved by this right hand, even by the same, it would have been saved. End of chapter. End of book. Thank you for listening.